Welcome to Pod to the Rescue, a podcast from Summit Dog Rescue in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Emily. And I'm Libby. We're both professional dog trainers with multiple certifications in dog training and behavior. Together, we have more than two decades of experience in dog rescue. We want to share everything we've learned along the way with other folks involved in dog rescue, sheltering, fostering, and adoption, and anyone who just loves dogs. Rescuing the dog is just the first step. We're here to help with everything that comes next. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Pod to the Rescue. I'm Libby. And I'm Emily. And today we are bringing you an interview with Michelle Stern, founder of Pooch Parenting. So we have talked about kids and dogs on the podcast before, but we find in our rescue that it is probably one of the top three issues why dogs are surrendered to shelters and rescues. Like, Emily, what do you think? I would say, honestly, I'm starting to feel like it might be the number one. Um, Of course, you know, we've got no statistics on that, but just from our experience and from the emails that we're getting, it seems to be the number one thing, including this year in our rescue, the only two returns we've gotten were both, you know, senior dogs where now the people have had children and toddlers and it's it's a serious issue when you have that happening in your family and michelle is the person to turn to absolutely we can't talk enough about how to positively integrate kids and dogs into your family unit so we loved this conversation with michelle and we hope that you enjoyed it as well you can find her at poochparenting.net Michelle Stern, founder of Pooch Parenting, is a certified professional dog trainer, dog behavior consultant, certified family dog mediator, mom, and former classroom teacher. With over 16 years of teaching experience, Michelle loves both the human and canine members of dog families, which shows in her warm and supportive demeanor with clients. She specializes in working with families who are expecting babies and those who already have children and dogs. Her popular podcast for parents with dogs is called the Pooch Parenting Podcast. Michelle has been featured on NBC Television and Print, Minnesota Public Radio, and has been a guest on over 20 podcasts. Michelle offers online classes, private consults, and a membership for dog professionals called the Pooch Parenting Coach Collective. Enjoy! Hello, Michelle Stern. Welcome to Pod to the Rescue. I am so happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. So let's get started by introducing our listeners to who you are and what you do, how you came to focus on dogs and kids. Well, my name is Michelle Stern. Like you said, I'm the founder of Pooch Parenting, and I am a dog and child specialist. I was a teacher for 16 years and I raised two kids, one of whom just graduated from college and the other one is still in community college. And among my teaching experience, I founded and ran a cooking school for children where we did a lot of work with toddlers and animals were always my first love. I wanted to be a vet until organic chemistry weeded me out like it did so many other folks. And It was really interesting when I finished teaching, 
I got reacquainted with my childhood mentor, who is the behavior specialist at our local shelter, where I had spent years volunteering. And I started to take her academy classes. And it sucked me back in and I felt like I was coming home. But what I realized in my work in her classes is that there was a missing piece in what I was feeling that most dog trainers were um, in how they were able to serve their clients. And that was that they knew a ton about dogs and about dog behavior, but they didn't necessarily have the empathy or the life experience to support families who are raising kids and dogs at the same time. And all of my years of teaching and also strangely enough, cooking with toddlers is very similar to like toddlers and puppies, right? Because toddlers with sharp objects, I mean, granted, I didn't give them like metal knives, but I did give them special serrated knives for kids. And we sometimes dealt with things like blenders and Cuisinarts and food processors and hot plates and ovens. You know, we made challah all the time. I worked at my kids' Jewish preschool sometimes teaching kids to cook, but kids and hot things, kids and sharp things, it's a very similar process to helping kids work through life with a puppy. And so I just feel like it was this beautiful mishmash, pardon the fancy words. I just don't know how to say it. It just brings everything together of everything I really care about, which is supporting parents, supporting the kids themselves and being around dogs and trying to help dogs also feel safe, both physically and emotionally within the family that they find themselves living. So it, I'm just so excited about that. And that's why we wanted to have you on because as you know, our podcast is part of our rescue. We have a dog rescue here in Boulder, Colorado. And one of the things that comes up in our rescue like almost on a daily basis is families struggling with their dog now that they have children or that they have brought a dog into the home and they're struggling. And it seems like there are very few trainers who really understand that niche. And it is a niche that is like so needed. So we're so grateful that you could come on so that you could help our listeners understand better how to make that dynamic work. Cause it's, it's not easy. And in a lot of ways, dogs are like blenders. I never even thought about that, but it's like works really great if you know what you're doing, but can be dangerous if you don't know what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. I agree with you completely. And I also did work in a shelter. I, I told you I was a volunteer there. I ended up on their behavior and training de department for a while. And I assisted a bit with some of the assessments that we were doing with trying to figure out how to write the profiles so that we could get good placements, et cetera. And there was sometimes a disconnect between what the behavior and training department was experiencing during these brief assessments and what the adoption team who were a, gr a group of volunteers who were actually helping to place the dogs with applicants. And so sometimes there is a disconnect and it can be very difficult. And I just want to empathize with you and your position because your goal is to get dogs placed in good placements so that they stick. But we also do want to get them out the door, right? I mean, there's this weird pressure of placing dogs, but additionally, the placements should be ideal, not just placements as a, as a placeholder. And so what I would sometimes see is that 
some dogs were placed in situations that might not be the best fit for that dog, but I could see the underlying pressure of a rescue to want to place them. But on the other hand, I'm trying really hard to offer my help to rescues like yours and our local shelter. I just had a meeting with them last week, actually here. Um, I'm in central Oregon now. And just to sort of say, Hey, listen, this is a weird niche, just like you said. And I don't know that anyone has supported your adopters once these animals come home to make sure that we have safety precautions in place and that we allow decompression and, and that sort of thing, but also that we help the kids learn the appropriate behaviors around the dog. But it goes both ways, right? The dog has to learn how to be around kids. Maybe they haven't lived with kids before, but also the kids have to learn how to be around their new dog. And that's very hard for kids who feel that they're getting a new potential quote, and I'm putting this in quotes, best friend, but the dog may not be ready for that, may not ever be ready for that, may not want that. And we have to learn, and I want to help parents understand and have appropriate expectations that sometimes we do adopt a dog and we can love them ferociously with our whole heart and soul, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be best friends with our kids. And we have to be okay with that if we want to keep that dog as part of our family. I would love to start there with setting up appropriate expectations for parents and families. Um, talk us through how you coach families and adopters through that process. Well, you know, we talk a lot about animals who are recently adopted needing time to decompress and and become comfortable and understand what it's like to live in that house. And a lot of rescues have their animals in foster placements, which is amazing because then at least you do have a better feel for what that animal is like in a home environment as opposed to in a kennel environment. And I've worked with rescues who have done both. I have fostered many dogs myself. And so I do, I've seen that firsthand that a dog who may not thrive in a shelter environment because it's there's barking and it's transition constantly. It's never really super peaceful. They can take some time to get into your home and, and show their true color, so to speak. And I say that as both a blessing and a curse, right? So this is actually very similar to when I taught high school students that we always joke, all the high school teachers joke about the honeymoon phase. And it's very similar to what we experience in rescue which is that dogs often come home and they may seem quote perfect at first, but that's really not because they are quote perfect. I don't think there's such a thing, but it's because they don't know what to expect. They're nervous. They don't know how you'll respond to certain things. We don't know their history. So we don't know if they were punished for certain behaviors historically, or if they just were never given opportunities historically to express normal behaviors. And so we end up with these dogs who are kind of dancing on eggshells a little bit in the beginning, trying to figure out how is it going to be in this new place? And so first, the first set of expectations, and I know you guys do an excellent job of that, is to really help people understand we need boundaries and we need structure in the beginning. Well, always, but especially in the beginning so that we're not just giving the dog free reign of the place. We're helping them to understand I am here to support you, but I want to set you up to succeed First, I don't want to, for example, give you free run of the house. And then I find out, oh, actually, maybe you're not as house trained as I thought, or maybe you like to pee on carpet, but you don't like to pee on the linoleum or whatever. So I need to start you with a smaller world 
and then expand once you've earned the privilege and demonstrated to me that you can handle that privilege. But that for parents can be in some ways a huge relief when they realize they're allowed to do this, but also it can be a little bit daunting because some of them have no idea how to use their space in such a way to set a dog up for success. So for example, if you have a toddler that has free reign of your house, then it may not even occur to you that you could put a baby gate on the kitchen or that you could use a playpen in a certain way to block off a corner of the family room to give what we call a yes space or safe space for either the dog or for the child. Because we can't allow free access between dogs and kids, especially when we really don't know what we're dealing with. I don't think ever really, to be honest, but especially in the beginning, we have absolutely no idea what to expect. And so I would rather parents be overcautious in a kind and loving way by using management strategies instead of running around and saying, no, stop, don't do that. Because you don't like yourself very much as a, as a parent. I'm speaking as a mom here. I found that when I was saying no to my kids, I didn't like who I was as a mom. And so I try to coach my students and my members and whoever I work with to try to challenge themselves to say yes more and to say no less. And what that means is we need to use management so that we can say yes more. Be like, wow, you're amazing. You're laying down on your bed behind the baby gate. You're going to get cookies for that. That's amazing. Great job. Because dogs do more of what we praise them for and what's rewarded. And, and so we can do that with the sort of home life appropriate behavior. Did I answer the question? Yes, totally. <laughs> and I would love for you to go into a little more detail on something you mentioned. You um, called something a yes space. Can you define that and tell us a little bit more about it? I can. And I'm still working on the concept and I've seen other trainers use the expression, a yes space. I've also, I'm also part of some parenting communities because it is so married together. And in the gentle parenting community, this is a similar concept, right? The, the main thing is I want dogs to have a place where they can safely be a dog. And that might mean being in a pen, for some dogs, it could be a crate. I think crates are often overused in our culture in the United States. That's where most of your listeners probably are. But in the United States, some people are overly reliant on crates, in my opinion. We also see very confusing messages on social media, like pictures of children in dog crates, which I think ruins the concept of a yes space. So for example, if I have a dog that's really comfortable in a crate because they feel like nobody can bother them in there, and then you have a child coming up and poking their fingers in and crawling into view with them, then it ceases to be a space of safety for that dog. And so what I mean by yes space is a space that's kind of off boundaries, either to the dog or to the child. And I'm holding up for your listeners who can't see, I'm holding up some blue tape here, and this is painter's tape. And it's one of my favorite tools in my training toolbox because it's a really great visual cue for children who sometimes have a hard time remembering rules. Now it could be because there's neurodiversity involved. It could be because they're just too little and their prefrontal cortex isn't developed. It could just be because they're distracted by their toys and they don't remember and they wanna run into the dog zone to grab something they think is theirs. But if you have something brightly colored that is a visual cue 
that we can say, stop right here. You don't cross this line. And for some kids, I call it hot lava. You know, I say, oh, don't cross the lava. It's a visual cue and something that we can jest about as a form of teaching. So I, when I was a high school teacher in particular, I used a lot of sarcasm in my teaching because that's a language teenagers are very familiar with. And so we could have a lot of fun with each other doing that. And little kids don't necessarily appreciate or understand that, but, you know, older kids can, but visual cues can help with reminders. It can help children to remember, hey, we're not going to cross this line. So let's just use the crate again for an example. So let's pretend we have the crate, say it's in the corner of the family room so the dog can still be a part of the family, but, but be safe. Then what I would do is I would maybe create a buffer zone with the blue tape, maybe two or three feet away from the edge of the crate on all sides and put that paint in a, you know, in a circle, square, rectangle, whatever around the crate with that buffer right? So the child, if their toy does roll over there, they can grab it, not be too close to the dog. The dog can recognize that we have this nice predictable pattern that when we approach that blue line, they stop. I can still feel safe. I don't have to get protective in my crate, defensive, etc. I think that's brilliant. And I love the idea of the blue painter's tape as an extra visual marker. Um, you know, because even a child approaching an X pen might be a little too close at some times. Right. I agree with you. And for some kids, it's not enough. Something on the ground is not something that's within their line of sight. If they're standing, walking, running, they're looking up. They're not looking at the floor. And in those cases, sometimes we need extra. Sometimes we need to put an X pen around a crate. We need or a play pen around the crate to create that sort of air gap type of situation. Or if you want to hack it, which I am a big fan of hacking things and making things simple, you can actually get a trifold science fair poster and stand that up around the crate. And that creates a visual barrier. So sometimes what you can't see is no longer an object of interest, out of sight, out of mind. For really young kids, they don't have what we call object permanence, which means if they can't see it, it doesn't exist anymore. And so what's fun about that is it folds up perfectly flat. You could slide it behind any piece of furniture. It's not ugly. It's not in your space. Super cheap. Anybody can afford to get it. And then if your kids are really into it, they could decorate it. They could draw stop signs all over it. They could make, you know, cut out collage pictures of dogs sleeping, for example, on it as another visual cue, like behind this barrier is a sleeping animal. You can make it really fun. And the teacher in me thinks of all the fun things you could do with that. You can give them assignments of find, here are 20 National Geographic magazines that I got from the recycle bin at the library because they're 50 years old or whatever, cut up all pictures of animals who are sleeping and we can collage it all over this or whatever. So you can have fun with it and turn things into a learning opportunity as well, which I'm always trying to do. I love the idea of bringing the dog into your home or having a dog in your home as a learning experience and a teaching experience for the whole family, especially the children to learn how to interact with another animal, how to start to meet their needs under the supervision of their parents. That's that's really brilliant. And perhaps more families could be successful. I think one thing is people don't really understand management 
like what you're talking about until they're told and given permission. Like the dog doesn't have to be right there eating the Legos and, you know, involved in all the chaos of a daily life with a child. So, yeah, I, you know, I would just like to interject for one second because you said something and it got me a little bit like triggered, not in a bad way, but in a, in a proactive, like, Oh wait, I, yeah. And, and that is that a lot of families, like you said, don't realize this is something that would give them much relief. And unfortunately, a lot of people come to me after something bad has happened and only then do they see the importance of using management like this. And they find such relief that I've given them permission that they didn't have to put up with the puppy chasing the toddler, nipping at their ankles around the family room, or, you know, they don't have to deal with puppies jumping on, on bare legs because it's summertime and everyone's wearing shorts that, that I can give you permission to say, you know what, your puppy seems kind of tired. Let's put them over here in this space where they can decompress because there's nothing else to do. They're not going to be able to chase your kids around because a lot of dogs have FOMO. They, they don't want to be left out of something. And my puppy is currently behind me chewing on, on a hide. What happens with her when she was tired is she would get more and more and more inappropriate because she couldn't settle down. And so I had to help her settle down. And for her, that meant either popping her in a crate or popping her into a pen where there was nothing else to do. So by removing options of activities that she could be doing, even though she should be sleeping, she's able to say, oh, thank goodness. And you could just see, you know, she curls up into a ball and within seconds is snoring because there's nothing else to do. And I think sleep is another topic that a lot of parents, and this goes hand in hand with management, that they don't realize how much sleep dogs really do need. And they think that the dogs need to be following them around all day when in reality, we need to help them learn how to be calm. And I think that 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 sleep and that overtired, overstimulated kind of um, energy is something a lot of parents can really relate to. Um, I'm not a parent myself, but I am an auntie and I am very familiar with, (laughs) we call it tornado mode. And so I think putting it into those terms for um, parents of puppies is really helpful. Yeah. And there's a witching hour. I mean, any parent will tell you that, especially when our babies are little, when everything in the world is new in the evening, they just have to let it all out. That's a lot of processing for a baby. And it's the same with baby dogs. And it's the same with a new dog in your household. Everything in your household is new today. I got to blow off steam and that could be inappropriate or it could be appropriate, but we have to set a boundary to set them up to be successful so that they're not letting off that steam in an inappropriate way. With our little babies, it's often hours of crying and you walk around the house bouncing and patting them and walking in a funny way. We, My husband and I joked that I wore a pattern in the carpet, you know, as I paced around with our daughter when she was little. Um, but I, I do think that anybody who's overtired is going to quote tantrum or whatever, where, where they're going to just let us all have it. <laughs> Tell us what's on their mind. And puppies and young dogs, I think tantrum as well. Sometimes it's zoomies. Sometimes zoomies are happy and they seem fine, but sometimes zoomies are, I'm overtired and I can't even think anymore. And so it's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to give you a little less space 
right now. We need to help you settle down. So one thing I'm thinking about as you're speaking is I definitely understand the whole management piece so that you have eyeballs on the dogs and kids and you're, you know, breathing and understanding when they're together and watching carefully. Um, So we should definitely talk a little bit about body language of dogs, but I'm also thinking how then do you meet the needs of the dog? You know, like we're as parents, the whole day is about the needs of your child, but now you bring this dog in and you're ready, overwhelmed. And I know we could talk about this for hours, but how do parents reach that balance? I think that's one reason parents reach out and just say, I'm overwhelmed. Can you help me rehome this dog? I just can't do it anymore. I see that a lot too. I get a lot of people crying during our sessions because they feel like really bad people. You know, I, unfortunately, social media I love it in some ways because, for example, it brought us together and that's how we've gotten to know each other over the past couple of years. But it's also full of people who are so mean and so judgmental and they make people feel so bad uh, for just existing. (laughs) And, you know, parenting without dogs is really hard. And so parenting with dogs is even harder. And so I know there are people who say, why would you make it harder on yourself? Why are you adding in more variables to the mix when it's already hard enough? And there's a range of children too. Some kids are easier than others. Some are not. And I I had one of each. And the one who was not easy was not easy like with an infinity sign, it was really intense. And I was incredibly lucky that the dog I had at the time was easy. He was mellow and he was nonplussed by any of the shenanigans that were going on around the house. So first I just want to acknowledge that parenting is so hard all the time. And we do not have eyes on the back of our head and we do not have octopus arms. And I wish we had all of those things because we need more hands. We need to be able to open baby gates while we're carrying laundry and groceries and a kid on our hip, et cetera. And then we throw a dog into the mix, just like what you said. So first of all, feeling overwhelmed is totally normal. And for some parents, I think that rehoming the dog is the best choice because as a parent, and I'm really talking parent to parent here, if your mental health is in the toilet because you just feel like you suck at everything, then sucking at parenting your dog too is just the icing on the cake. And if we can make your life a little bit easier and safer, then we need to do that. And we need to do that without judgment because it's absolutely not fair to assume that a parent should be able to take on more than they can take on. And so that's something that I am going to be just a hard ass about because I feel really strongly that if the parent doesn't feel supported and seen that everything is going to fall by the wayside. So let's just get that out of the way. Management. I'm going to go back to management again, really quickly, because management is what allows you to pee. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but you cannot pee without either your kid in the bathroom with you or your dog in the bathroom with you, or unless you have gates, pens, whatever that your kids aren't going to open. Because if you leave the room, you're not supervising. And so how are you going to go down to the laundry? How are you going to drain your boiling spaghetti noodles? Your back will be turned to your household when you're doing that. I don't know how else you can drain noodles, right? And noodles are a big part of our diet when we have children. It's noodles all the time. Um, so, So I just... 
I want to also acknowledge that we have to be practical and we have to give parents tools and strategies so that they can function as human beings. They need to be able to sometimes sit on the couch with their feet up and scroll social media on their phone or binge watch some ridiculous Netflix show. I do it. You do it. It's normal. But unless we empower people to divide up spaces or to say, it's your turn on the couch with me and I'm going to set a timer and in 20 minutes, the timer goes off and we take turns and someone gets off the couch and someone gets on the couch with me. So for example, maybe you want to sit and snuggle on the couch with your dog. Go for it. I'm not a no dog on the furniture person. I don't mind. I have small dogs. Um, so for me, it's great. They fit everywhere. They can be mm-hmm. anywhere with me. Although they have tried to get on the kitchen table, which is a no-go that I draw the line <laughs> there, but, um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's okay to give your dog that love and give that dog that attention and tell your child, I need you to play with your toy until the timer goes. And when the timer goes, we're going to switch and I'm going to give the dog a bully stick and you get to snuggle on the couch with me. But again, we need to do things in bite-sized digestible pieces that kids understand and that dogs understand. So I'm going to give you a really silly strategy that I sometimes share with my students. So I I have a program for pregnant and adopting and people who are using surrogates to have babies, but they have a dog. So their dog was their first baby. And this program is called Pause to Pacifiers. And what I'm doing, it's a six-week live group coaching program. And what I'm doing in that program is I'm just really trying to help these people to feel safe, to feel good. A lot of them come to me because their dog is sort of what I call extra, extra energy, extra nervous, extra bite history, extra whatever, right? Resource guardy. And so we have a lot of work to do so that they can safely integrate a baby into their household. And there, and I coach them on what to do once the baby comes home too. We have to talk about that because they're really scared. Like, What if they have a C-section and they can't get off the couch for 10 days and it's really hard to move around? How am I going to give my dog love? How am I going to give my dog exercise? I'm going to be a lump on the couch learning how to not kill my new baby, right? It's a tremendous responsibility when those nurses hand you your baby and say, go home. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And then you have a dog at home who may or may not be okay with that. And so one of the simple strategies that I like to share with them is to keep a little bottle of bubbles tucked in the couch. They make these meat flavored bubbles for dogs, which is totally insane by the way, but very cool, like liver or beef flavored bubbles. And you can just sit on the couch and blow bubbles. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but many dogs think bubbles are just the funnest thing ever. And they'll run around and they'll jump up and try to bite the bubbles. And it's really fun. And it's silly. And you can't help but smile and enjoy your dog when they're being energetic like that. So it's enriching for the dog. It's a bonding moment for you and your dog. And it's a huge guilt reliever for the parent who feels that their dog has gotten the short end of the stick once they bring home their new baby. So very long answer. I'm so sorry to your, to your very good question is that we have to find little things that we can do to see the dog in front of us. Now that's going to depend on what kind of dog it is. It's going to depend on their genetics. For example, a herding dog is going to need a different kind of activity than let's say a guardian breed or um, a terrier, right? So, you know, with terriers, my, I have two terriers and they love 
they would love to hunt for rats all the time if they could. But we do sniffy activities so I can give them a snuffle mat. Takes me no longer to pour food in a snuffle mat than it would in a bowl. And I let them forage. Sometimes I hide food around the house or put it in boxes and they have to figure out how to get it. I'm taking advantage of what their natural inclination would be. With a herding dog, you could probably use a flirt pole from the couch as well and where you don't have to move too much, but you're engaging in what they want to do, which is to chase things. So I think we have to see the dog in front of us. And with with older do- with uh, with older children, you could also get them involved if they were, let's say, like four to eight or 10, maybe get them involved in some safe enrichment activities so that dog's needs are being met, but you're still working as a family. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. You know, this is, this can be really tricky because a lot of people have the misconception that for their child to be involved in the dog's life, that they have to be touching each other and they don't. There's a lot you can do as a child for your dog that builds that bond, but that does not involve potential teeth on skin. And that's going to depend on the developmental age and stage of that child, because not all four-year-olds are created equal. Not all 25-year-olds are created equal, right? Maturity-wise. So, um, and we also have to look at what are their motor skills like? Are they, are they, clumsy. And I say that not in a judgy way, but just, you know, are they going to be able to do things with finesse? Are they not? And so we can look at different activities that kids can do. So they can often throw things. You know, some kids can't throw things. They go to throw it and it falls behind them. And then that creates too much closeness with the dog because the dog is is not going in the direction we're hoping. If we're hoping for space between the child and dog and they can't throw, Maybe they could push a ball across the room and the dog can go get it. If we have a baby gate up, the child can drop a ball onto the other side of the baby gate, for example, or throw cookies or even pieces of kibble as part of the dog's meal. The the child can throw that. Um, Of course, we don't want to do that if the dog is a resource garter, but, you know, everything comes with a caveat of course. Uh, But there are a variety of things that you can do with kids and dogs. I am a huge fan, again, because I founded a cooking school for kids to have kids involved in making enrichment toys for the dog. So loading up topples and Kongs and, you know, licky mats and things of that nature and putting those in the freezer. They can be the one to go get it out of the freezer. We can put the dog behind a pen. The child can put the, the, food item down on the other side, and then the parent can release the dog to go get the food. So there's no contact between the two of them, but yet without that child's help, that dog would not get to experience those really great things. I think that's brilliant. Finding age appropriate, um, ways for the child and dog to interact that, you know, it's enriching for everybody and it deepens that relationship. And, you know, having that relationship between the child and the dog is, it, it seems to me, and maybe you can speak more to this, um, is only going to be a good thing. I agree. You know, a lot of parents, like we, I inferred earlier, parents have these visions of my dog and kid being best friends. And we can hopefully help them to live in harmony. And that's really the goal that I have is not a best friend goal because I don't think that having a best friend goal is appropriate for some kids. Some kids don't want that. 
some kids are afraid of dogs. We have to own that. We have to acknowledge that some dogs are afraid of kids. Some dogs might be fine with your kid, but are not fine when you bring home friends or host birthday parties. So these are other issues that a lot of parents don't know about, and they make false assumptions that if a dog is okay with my kid, my dog will be okay with all kids. And that's not always the case. So I think that, again, I keep saying it, but looking at the child and the dog in front of you over time, where you can really try to understand who they are and what they feel, what they believe, what makes them safe, what makes them happy. We need to put all of that together in terms of what we can have as appropriate expectations for that dog and that child. I love that. I, yeah, you might not have a best friend relationship, but you can have a safe relationship with mutual respect between the dog and the child. Yes, I love that. That's a great way of saying it. So something that uh, we face a lot in rescue is um, couples who have adopted a dog and then, um, you know, they, they don't have any kids. And then five years down the road, um, baby comes along and things go sideways. How would you coach adopters who think there might be babies in their future when they're adopting a dog? Oh, I love this question. Um, this is one of my favorite things to do in my work. Um, I'm about to have a, a free pre-baby boot camp. Um, and I'm going to have them three times a year. My goal is that I can hit somebody within some trimester of their pregnancy. If I offer it three times a year ish, I may have to up it to four, but three times a year. So it's a pre-baby boot camp. but the main theme of it is jealousy. And the reason that I picked that as the main theme of this pre-baby boot camp is that that seems to be one of the biggest concerns that people have is that their dog will be jealous of the new baby. And that might leak out sideways in some with inappropriate behaviors, guarding, uh, extra barking or whatever to make the parent's life more difficult. And so they come in with a lot of worry that's under the umbrella of jealousy, but it's bigger than that, really. So it's a free boot camp on that. And then that leads into my Pause to Pacifiers program, which is six week live coaching. And we meet twice a week and it's so much fun. We have the best time. We have a Q&A every week in the class. But um, I really think that the best thing anybody could do is to get support ahead of time if they're thinking about having a baby. And I'm not saying, you know, you have to pay me or whatever, but find someone you trust, someone who really understands parenting with dogs. Like it, I, it needs to be that whole thing because if you are working with a trainer who can't envision what that life will look like for you or some of the feelings that you might experience, or who can't anticipate some of the problems that are age appropriate that are going to come up. For example, once the baby starts moving or once the baby starts crawling towards a food bowl, or once the baby starts trying to take a toy from the dog, or even as a baby, as a tiny infant baby, this involuntary grabbing reflex that babies do and they cannot let go and if there's a fistful of fur within reach, we could have a big problem. And so my advice to you 
I, of course, would love to serve you, but if it's not me, someone who gets those things and can help you to anticipate things that are absolutely normal so that you don't feel like you failed. And really starting as soon as you can. I've started working with people when they filled in their adoption paperwork and they didn't know how long it would take. It could take nine months, it could take a year, it could take two years, or the second you get pregnant or you start your IVF treatments, it's never really too early to start. And it doesn't mean you have to see your your professional a ton over that time, but throughout the time when you know you're waiting for your baby to show up, um, there's a lot of little steps that you can do and a lot of practice that you can do so that when you finally bring your baby home, you have so much more confidence. So that really starting early, I think there is a lot of preparation you could do. And it's not just that your dog knows how to sit or that your dog knows how to stay somewhere. And, and I would argue with anyone who says, well, you know, my dog is, is well-behaved. I don't have to worry. That's just not true. Yeah. Something else we see a lot, which you touched on is everything's going swimmingly until the baby is mobile or until the baby starts walking or toddling or running around. And that's another kind of hurdle um, that we find in, in the process of raising kids in a home with dogs. Yeah. You know, a tiny baby, my husband jokes that babies are larvae and they don't really do a heck of a lot. You know, they lay around and they burp and they poop and stuff like that. And they cry, but they don't, they're not moving. They're not a threat. They're not scary. They're quite predictable. You know, they're going to just lay there and flail around sometimes. That's fine. But for a dog, when things really get challenging is when that little baby starts moving around and we have no idea where they're going. We don't know what they want. We don't know how they feel. They don't know how they feel. And they may cry and scream and have a fit because you gave them the wrong color sippy cup. You know, they their feelings are big and they're strong and they come out of nowhere. Um, and dogs have a very hard time with that because dogs thrive on predictability and toddlers are anything but. So that is a huge piece of you know, my business is when people come to me just so upset, my dog bit my toddler in the face, or my dog is growling at my toddler, or my dog is now growling when my toddler is trying to stand and learn to walk, holding onto the edge of the couch where my dog is comfortably resting. And dogs don't like to be surprised. And so there's a lot we can do again there to prepare dogs and to prepare their humans to anticipate what could happen. And that leads us to a great question of like, what can you discuss a little bit about the growl? I think that is something that our society doesn't really understand. So what do you coach people to do if their dog starts growling at their young toddler? Oh, I love this one. Or any so, kid. Yeah. yeah growling so at anyone. I have, I have a free handout and I will give you the link that you can share with this podcast. It's called the ABCs of growling. And it's my most popular freebie that I give away. People love this because I talk about what it means, what to look for, how dogs are feeling, what not to do in response to growling and what they should do instead in response to growling. So I'll just summarize very briefly here. Growling is communication and we need to tell our dogs, thank you for telling me that you're uncomfortable. And that is one of the 
hardest things you can do because when your dog growls, your gut instinct is to say, knock it off. Don't do that. That's scary. And it is scary. But what's scarier is if a dog bites instead. And so what we need to do is we need to stop everything that's going on. Try to assess why is my dog growling? What made my dog uncomfortable? Is it because my child is getting too close? Is it because there's a noisy toy? Whatever. And then we need to prevent that from continuing. So usually it means moving the child away, putting the toy away, giving distance to make the dog more comfortable. It usually is not harsh words to the dog, hands on the dog, moving the dog. Because if we go in and rush into the dog, they're going to think something's wrong and that their growl was totally justified. It was justified. I don't want to be confused about that, but I don't want them to think they did something wrong. They did something great. If our dog can consistently learn that when they growl, we save them, then they will start to feel safer and they will growl less. But ideally we prevent the thing that made them growl in the first place, because once we become aware that a helium balloon, when my kid is throwing it around the house or whatever, that that is a trigger, then we no longer bring helium balloons into the family room where the dog likes to hang out. We keep them in our child's room where they can play with them in private, right? So we change our behavior once we know what makes our dogs uncomfortable. So growling is wonderful, even though it's terrifying. And I totally understand your gut instinct is to freak out, but really that's not what your dog needs you to do. Your dog needs you to help step in and protect them. Somewhere I saw someone saying on social media that the growl is like the fire alarm. And if you use any sort of punishment or reprimand the dog, it's like taking the batteries out of the fire alarm. So what you just said was totally right on and perfect. Thank you. I I, I sometimes look at it as the yellow light in a traffic signal also that, boy, if you went from green and you're driving along and suddenly it turned red, there would be accidents all over the place because you didn't have that warning system. So the growl very much is a warning system. We've rescued dogs that don't growl and just go straight to the bite. Mm-hmm. And that's terrible because then you have to look at like the smallest body language, um, which might be another good place to go right now is parents should know body language. Don't you think? I agree. The problem is, is that even for experts like us, some body language happens so subtly and so quickly that it's easy to miss. And if you're busy, like functioning like a normal parent and you're coloring with your kids and, you know, doing an activity and folding laundry and talking on the phone all at the same time, you may not notice a change in lip tension in your dog. And so there are some real big ones that we can notice, but there are a lot of very subtle ones that are easy to miss. And so I think if we can educate parents on some of the big ones, like yawning, for example, that they may think just means the dog is tired, then then they can start. I, I always joke with my people that I want them to get a little detective hat and put it on their head or carry around a magnifying glass and turn into Sherlock Holmes because there's a lot that they need to start looking for and noticing that they never noticed before. Subtle shifts in in you know the direction a dog is leaning, for example, what their ears are doing, what their mouth is doing. Did they lift a paw up, for example? These are so subtle, you would never know. A dog lifting up a paw, you might envision a pointer dog, right? Pointing at something. 
but you wouldn't necessarily know that a dog who's lifting up their paw could be doing it because they're feeling anxious. And so much of that depends on context as well. You know, if your pointer is in the backyard and lifts a paw and is looking at the trees, okay, that's a pretty clear what's going on there. If your herding dog is doing that in the living room while kids are running around, that's a totally different story. That's true. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Context is everything. The Lily Chin book, Body, is it Doggy Language? That could be a really great book for older children. Um, And then you could be like, do some detective work with your child. Like, let's write down five little signals that we felt like, you know, Henry did today while we were watching him. Look at you go. See, you're teaching already. I love it. No, I love that book and I recommend it to so many people. And I actually recommend that families keep it at the dinner table and that everybody gets to take a turn to open it to some random page and talk about it. And what does it look like? And have we ever seen our dog do it? It's a great book. A big, a big misconception with body language that we've talked about on the podcast before is belly rubs. And I think that that's important to teach kids about too, because, oh, look, so cute, belly rubs. That might not be what's going on here. (laughs) The dog can feel so vulnerable on the floor with its belly exposed and everybody just assumes the dog is offering up their belly for pets. And I would rather we ignore those uh, behaviors and walk away. And if we think the dog wants to engage with us, then we can always invite the dog over. And if they want affection, they will come to you for it. But if they don't come to you, then you need to hear that as a no, thank you. Yeah. That's a biggie that we all misinterpret. Agreed. It's almost like wagging tails are always happy. That's another (laughs) misconception that, well, he was wagging his tail, so he must've been happy, but they're not looking at the frequency and the speed and the height and all of those other things that are the rest of the dog attached to the tail. (laughs) Right. There is that there's a face that's very communicative on most dogs. (laughs) Absolutely. Do you think that our expectations of our dogs are just too high as a society? Definitely. I do. I, I think that movies, you know, I think back to when I was a child, I might be dating myself, but when I was a child, Lassie was a show on TV and, you know, Lassie was a hero. She was amazing. She was tolerant. She was smart. She was communicative. Um, and she was off leash all the time, just roaming around. And that's not at all in our typical society. And I'm not saying if you're rural that it has to be the same because it could be very different if you live on a farm or with acreage. I live in a community where I'm not allowed to have a fenced in yard because we have wildlife. I had to rehang my bird feeder this morning because a mama deer learned how to stick her tongue in the holes and eat all my bird seed. So we have animals everywhere here and we're not allowed to have fences. And so that means that I have to shift how I parent my dogs. And so This is interesting. So even as a dog professional in a world where other dog professionals are telling us every dog needs off leash time, I have to say, okay, I get that. And I want to give my dog everything they need, but I have to do it in a different context because of where I live. So if you live near a busy street or if you live, you know, where there are predators, or if you live 
you know, where the neighbor's dog is aggressive and will blow through their fence. You have to change how you do things. And there are places I use a long line, for example. So, and we live right next to the woods. So we go in the woods and my dogs can still be dogs, but I have to do it in a safe way because we have coyotes and stuff. Um, I think that we all hope for the best. And sometimes that means we put on rose colored glasses and just assume things are going to be fine. And I would rather learn things will be fine because we've worked on th- worked on it. We built skills. My dogs have shown me what kinds of choices they make in different types of scenarios. I, I, I hope for the best, but I also kind of expect the worst. And I know that sounds really sad, but it means that I won't be disappointed. I will only be thrilled when things go well because I want them to go well and I'm going to set my dogs up to succeed, but I have to assume they're going to chase the chipmunk. They're terriers. That's what they're going to do. So I have to be careful when I clip on and off the leash, for example. I just love your program because when I had my son, it was 22 years ago. So none of this was available to me. And I luckily survived raising my son with multiple dogs. We lived rurally, which I think really saved me because I don't think as a single mom, I had the time to meet their needs. Um, And we had a mishap or two that I won't go into. But um, what I'm thinking while I'm hearing you speak is like some of the people who reach out to us have kind of just survived it long enough that by the time they reach out, they're just done. And what I love about your program so much is that you're like here, we can do it methodically so that in some cases, probably not all, because you're right, there are those people where it's just not the right fit. And there's no shame in coming to that mindful conclusion, but there are ways to set everyone up for success because it's heartbreaking for a family to lose their family pet. And it's heartbreaking for children. And your program makes it so that the dog can actually be amazing complement to the family unit and the child can learn and the parents can learn and everyone learns together, which is really the way it should be in that like idyllic world of family dog relationships, don't you think? What my goal is, and it's really nice hearing you say it because it means that I think I'm communicating enough who I hope to be for people that I really just want to be a safe port in a storm. And I know that unfortunately, a lot of people who come to me are sad and scared and afraid and all of those kinds of things. But I also hope that I can help you feel a little more optimistic and maybe we can put out some fires and operate in SOS mode for a little bit and see if we can change the dynamic. And if we can't, it's okay, you know, but, but somebody sees you and that's, Mm -hmm. I think that's all anybody wants. I think that's a brilliant place to end (laughs) right there. I think, um, wow, this is a wonderful, really rich conversation, Michelle. I I have wanted to be on your podcast forever. And it's such an honor that you chose me to be a guest. I really, really appreciate it. Michelle, where can our listeners find you online? I have a website, which is poochparenting.net. I have a podcast for parents called the Pooch Parenting Podcast, and it's on all of the podcast players like Spotify and iTunes. I'm on Facebook at Facebook, whatever slash 
Pooch Parenting and also on Instagram at Pooch Parenting. But I'm, I spend more of my time on Facebook than I do on Instagram. And my website describes all of the services that I offer for both parents. And I have a support program for other dog professionals who want to be more effective at helping families with children as well, because it's tends to be an area where dog trainers are just inclined to say no thanks. But if you are living in a small community, if you're the only positive reinforcement dog trainer in your community and you want to help parents um, and feel more confident about doing that, I can help you with that too. And all of those things are on my website. You do a lot of work virtually. So if someone lives in Oklahoma, they can still contact you. Every Yes, I see all my clients online. So I can help you wherever you live. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was a lovely conversation and I think it's going to help a lot of people. I hope so. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It helps other folks like you find the show. Thanks to Mike Pesci for the original music and James Eid of Be Heard for production. For show notes and transcripts, visit poddotherescue.com. Let us know what you think about this episode on social media. We're at Pod to the Rescue on Facebook and Instagram, and we love connecting with listeners. We'll catch you next time on Pod to the Rescue. Oh, and tell your dog we said hi. <laughs>